Miracy. Hi, it's Sharon Richmond, the host of this show, and I'm here today to share a different kind of episode with you. You listen to To Lead is Human because you want to be inspired by other leaders. That's why I thought you might be interested in a podcast that recently joined the Miracy FM Podcast Network. It's called Teacher Tom's Podcast, Taking Play Seriously, and it's hosted by Tom Hobson. This podcast delves into unconventional but commonsensical educational approaches that aim to raise children who use all the brilliance that they're born with, which surely will make them better leaders later in life. I chose this particular episode because it's hard to argue with its guest, Maggie Dent, a prominent figure in Australia's parenting landscape. I think you'll enjoy how she empowers parents, teachers, and children as she demonstrates a path for strengthening families and communities and raising the young leaders of tomorrow. If you like what you hear, make sure to find Teacher Tom's podcast in your favorite podcast player and subscribe to it. Because I'm concerned today's kids give up way too easily and their resilience is impacted by less play because play is the best teacher how to raise a capable, competent, resilient kid. Hi, I'm Teacher Tom, and this is my podcast. Let's take a moment to think about our own childhoods. I want you to recall a beautiful moment, a time when you were young. You know, go back as far as you can. Most people, they tell us, don't have many memories from before they were six years old. But maybe you're one of the lucky ones. So let's spend a little time with that memory. Where are you? Who, if anyone, was with you? What were you doing? What were you feeling? The memory that comes up for me was playing with my neighborhood friend, Phoebe Azar. I was probably five years old. It was summertime. Neither of us were wearing shoes. We would meet up every morning after breakfast in John Sane's front yard because it was halfway between our houses. The adults were all indoors, busy, so it was just us kids outside. Sometimes other kids would join us. Her brother John, my brother Sam, the Beale kids, the Weibel kids, the Cozart kids. Indoors belonged to the adults. When we were inside, they were always telling us what to do, but outside, that was the place where we felt free. Now, I've done this exercise dozens of times with groups of adults, then asked them to share their beautiful moments. Most of the time, those beautiful moments came while playing outdoors. Maybe yours is that way. Usually, like in my memory, the adults were somewhere else. We were unsupervised, or at least not directly supervised. Today, we're talking to the queen of common sense, Australia's own Maggie Dent, author of nine, soon to be 10, books on parenting, childhood, and play. Maggie spent two decades as a classroom teacher before moving into counseling and then becoming the wildly popular parent educator she is today. Maggie is regularly featured on parenting blogs, podcasts, and is a regular contributor to Australian national TV programs, not to mention serving as host of the ABC podcast, Parental As Anything. And today she's joining us. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, so good to be back. I've missed you. I think it's been about a year or so since we've chatted. Yeah, and you're overdue for a visit back to Australia. Come on. You know, tell me about it. I really would love to get back down under. I, uh, for those of you who don't know, Maggie is in Australia. I think you're in Sydney right now. Just south of Sydney, yep, yep. 
You are often considered to be the queen of common sense. You're somebody who has been doing this for a long time and you've helped so many people over the years. Let's talk about preschoolers and let's talk about play. You know, this podcast subtitle is Taking Play Seriously. And so I guess I'm just going to start off with the general question. You know, why is play for young children so important, especially now? Oh, golly. I think the fundamental needs of children, particularly in the early years, has never changed, Tom. Like they need exactly the same things. But what's happened is the world around our children has changed. And there's a few things that are making the whole experience of play very different. The first one is that we have more parents working today to survive. You know, even before you have a child, quite often you've got to have your child on a waiting list for an early childhood centre because otherwise you're not going to get them in one. So that's the first thing. We've got much busier parents and their lifestyle is much busier. So one other thing they do is there's this perception that parenting and raising kids is a bit of a competition. Mm -hmm. So I want to have the best kid, right? Therefore, I'm going to sign them up to every extracurricular activity that possibly can happen on earth. Because And then what we're doing is they often say it's about play, but in actual fact, it's a grown-up directing the play. And then on top of that, we've got the screen world. What happens is, you know, when TV was around in the earlier stages of, you know, raising kids, there was only a couple of kids' programs. Mm -hmm. And so the kid would watch that and then there's grown-up stuff, so you didn't watch it, whereas now you can stream continuous programs 24 hours a day. Now, I still am a big fan of using the TV, not a handheld device. And then you get the handheld device, which, of course, is displacing all sorts of things that are about childhood development. So that's a biggie on top of it again. And then for some crazy reason, and I am going to kind of point my finger at you Americans, <laughs> you all got very worried about children getting hurt and getting sued. So you scared the bejesus out of kids all around the Western world, including in Australia. So everyone got terrified that, you know, if we take away the dangerous stuff, then kids are going to be safer and everyone's going to be healthier, which of course ends up to being the absolute opposite. Mm. And I think that fear linked to the competition means that the child that falls out of the monkey bars and breaks an arm shows you're a lousy parent or the grey's knee or they don't let them climb too high. So I think we tapped into the biological wiring of parents to want to keep their kids safe mm -hmm. and we piled a whole truckload of fear onto it, which then stole away those opportunities for children in their own way and their own time to grow in those spaces. And I think there's one other thing in there too is that it used to be okay for kids to play in neighbourhoods. And we've noticed neighbourhood play is diminishing significantly, that a lot of kids don't even necessarily know the kids in their own street. So I think neighbourhood play was another thing that that really has impacted that space that we're all, you know, you drive in and your roller door comes down and boom, that's it. We're all locked up for the night to keep them safe. But I really want to just drop this one so that I don't forget it, because to me, that queen of common sense says if you want to raise healthy kids and healthy teens, because teens are, you know, like toddlers on steroids, then if they can spend as much possible time outside in the natural world with potential risks, in the company of multi-age children of all genders within a blood-curdling scream of one safe adult, I reckon we could change the health and mental health trajectory of our children quite significantly. I can't disagree with anything you said. And it makes me it makes me wonder though. It makes me think, okay, so play, what is play? 
what is that? You know, you said what play isn't, right? You talked yep. about like yep. if it's adult directed and you talked about how the screens often displace the benefits yep. of play. So what are the strong reasons? I mean, obviously there's the physical aspect. All right. What is play? Play is actually, it is actually children's learning. I mean, okay, so they're born and their job is to explore the world, to make sense of the world in order to be able to grow in an optimal way. And I'm blessed, Tom, I'm back in toddler land. You know, I've got seven beautiful grandchildren. So it's beautiful with my lens of research and experience and how to come back and watch this thing called play, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't really appreciate that everything almost that they're doing is a form of play in their world. You know, like they don't have to tick off things that they need to be doing. And a really good example is we were heading with my littlest toddler, he was two at the time, to a park. It just rained buckets of rain came down and so we hid under this enormous pine tree and as we're waiting and as it cleared he started to pick up the the fronds right and I'm I'm under the tree observing and that is this beautiful place that only I think (laughs) early childhood educators get and nannies and grandparents and I'm thinking I wonder what he's doing because that seeking mechanism is wired to be curious as heck And so he's picked up this frond and he's looking at it. And then he's noticed more fronds. So he's picking two and three. And then he's putting like two fronds in his hands and they're not quite fitting, right? And I'm looking at him thinking, can I get one more in there? No, I can't. So I'll put three in that. And then what he's decided to do is he's he's put some down. So he's now starting to make a little treasure of them, right? And he's walking around and picking up all these fronds. and, And then he's come back and there's a footpath next door. And then he's lining them up and then he's putting them across each other and 45 minutes. Wow. Wow. Without a word from me, Uh he was immersed in his own self-directed autonomous experience of using nature Mm -hmm. to be curious, but it was a game to him, right? And I thought, oh my God, we complicate it by buying endless toys, don't we? But I want to go back to the displacement effect that we're noticing with teachers of five-year-olds in Mm -hmm. Australia. And it's been sort of for the last five or six years. The first one is their their fine and gross motor skills have dropped considerably. Mm. So you can't get that if you're on a couch with an iPad on your lap, right? Right. The second one is there's a drop in oral vocab. Mm. And we're not talking to our kids as much. We're not marinating in the same languages. And so often busy parents will hand over an iPad with a fabulous song on it that's sung by some gorgeous person who sings songs for kids, but it's not coming out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And I worry that we also hand phones to little ones and shopping centers to keep them quiet and make them behave. Whereas in the olden days, we'd be going, now, where is the bread? Is it this aisle or is it that aisle? Mm -hmm. And which one do we have? And which yogurt? So all of that sort of thing, they're having less words. But there's one other challenge that I noticed in some research I read the other day. And that is less words means that you have less ability to be able to interact socially when you turn up in your early childhood settings in your classrooms. Interesting. You actually need words to communicate your needs and wants. So that can lead to frustration. Which leads to the third thing, which is poorer self-regulation. Today's kids collapse around all sorts of things. And then the last one was inability to initiate and sustain play. Basically, they just can't get a game going, don't know how to do it. Uh And when you put those four things together, all of them end up as a deficit 
as you know, we agree on this. But I, there are some people who are going to sit there and say, well, you know, but why, why don't we just do a physical education class to get them physically fit? You know, why don't we just get a speech therapist in and we work on the vocabulary with them? Well, you know, why don't we uh, get a psychologist in to help them practice self-regulation skills? And, you know, why don't we um, have a bunch of extra classes on socialization and that kind of stuff? I mean, what? why is play better? Well, it's cheaper. Let's be honest, because that means you're only catering to the privileged. Okay. Who can afford it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that bothers me as well, because right. it just creates a bigger divide between that. And one of the beautiful things is that children, when they're all playing in, you know, those environments that are free, they actually don't notice skin color. They don't notice disability. They're the most inclusive little, little wonderful beings on earth, aren't they? So I think all of that happens naturally in that space, you know, because there's so many forms of play, right? right? I think parents have got a limited lens that it needs to be that I'm playing with them or they're playing with another child. But sometimes, you know, solo play is equally as brilliant, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. One of the key things I wanted to bring up for you is because I wrote the book Girlhood, where I was exploring girls because I'm really good with boys because I had four of them. But I couldn't believe how early my granddaughters were using imaginative and pretend play. I could not be like, they're only just verbal and they're creating these great big scenarios absolutely fascinated me how long those games were going but also how they wove what was happening around stuff into those play and how they make sense of the world through that lens I mean I'd read the research before so here's one example I'm looking after my five-year-old granddaughter during COVID mum and dad are both working from home and she says we're going to play doctor's nanny and I said okay sure Anyway, so she's got the foyer of my house with a door and she's opened the door and in a big stern voice called out, Maggie Dent, you're next. <laughs> anyway, so I've gone and sat down and she checked. She said, have you got a, a snotty nose? Have you got a temperature? Have you got a cough? So she checked. I didn't have COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is exactly what a doctor would have done. And then he asked me what was wrong and I said, my knee's a bit sore. So she checked my knee and she said, no, no, you need a Band-Aid. And so she went and got an Elsa Band-Aid and put it on my knee. Now, in Australia, we have a healthcare card, a green one. So she wanted my green card. And then she wanted my tap-tap card. She didn't even bulk bill me. She's charging me, right? Uh -huh. Anyway, later on the afternoon, I could, Maggie, Dad, you're next. I thought, oh, God, another appointment. <laughs> Gee whiz. So she checked again, did I have COVID? Uh -huh. And I sat down and she said, how's your knee? And I said, it hasn't got any better. Now, wait for this. She says, well, probably should go and see another doctor. <laughs> Five years of age, right? Second opinion. Kind of like we have to be back in the child space for it to be authentic play in that moment. Yeah. And I, you know, watched so much excitement. And apparently I'm really annoying for my son mm. because when I do take their little ones to the park, they assume I'm taking them to play on these structures uh -huh. that are created, right? But then I've got them over the edge and we're looking for, you know, nuts off trees and seeds and leaves and interesting bugs. And, uh -huh. and I heard two of my boys complaining one day, oh, God, mum's a pain, isn't she? Because <laughs> once mum's taken them, you've got to bring all these treasures home. God, I've got this box full of absolute rubbish. Uh -huh. And I love that you don't have to have a bought toy. Right. And often... Too many toys actually diminishes your child's capacity for being a creative thinker and a problem solver later. You've mentioned the things we're making specifically for toys are, are maybe getting in the way. Why do you suppose that is? Why is that, that the manufactured toys 
aren't nearly as educational or delightful as the found objects and the loose parts. There's no question that the whole pressure of consumerism is another factor, isn't it? I think the perception is we want to make our children happy, so let's buy toys and toys Mm -hmm. will make them happy. But there's this thing in that seeking mechanism I mentioned before is that you've played with a toy. It only works one way. Right. Well, it's not going to engage them. That's why loose parts is just such an unbelievably powerful thing for kids because every time they turn up, they can be that creative, what do I do this time? Mm -hmm. And when you have fixed structures, then you can't do that. How their little brains are working is what if, Uh what if that went with that? What if we did that? And one of the challenges early when we started the nature play movement in Western Australia was that they were building these beautiful playgrounds, lots of wood and giant rocks and, you know, big things. But when I was watching them, they were still all fixed. Like the kids Mm. couldn't move the rocks or the logs. And, you know, I was actually saying to them, it's really important that children can move the environment because each time they're doing that, the brain is expanding its capacity to go, oh, gee, that'll go with that. And, and I think we, we underestimate that there is enormous natural intelligence just waiting to be excited in that space. And, you know, I think that they kind of are intuitively in tune with their body uh-huh. until we muck that up. Mm. Right? Yeah, and that's yeah. the whole thing. I don't want my child to get hurt, so I'm going to make them overly safe. So then you factor all that gender stuff over the top, that girls aren't as brave, Mm -hmm. boys are tougher, rubbish, rubbish, right? In actual fact, I wonder how many girls have been held back because there's that thing that says, oh, no, you will get hurt. Right. And one of the gifts of allowing them to go as high as they want to go is that most of the time they'll listen to their early warning system. They'll take themselves to the edge of their own fear most of the time. Mm -hmm. And every now and then they will go past it and there's a possibility they will get a grazed knee or they will hurt themselves. That gift of a natural consequence Mm -hmm. for the feisty, strong kids is exactly how Mother Nature intended them to recognize, I do need to keep an eye out when I go right out there. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Rather than a parent saying, that's too far. You need to come down. So I think the natural consequence is a fabulous gift, not a sign they're a lousy kid, you're a lousy parent. It's exactly what they need because kids can actually learn to navigate through their play, how Mm -hmm. to take themselves to the edge of their own bravery. And it is so exciting for them. It gives them the biggest dopamine hit you can imagine. And have you seen a child who's conquered a monkey bar? Have you seen the child who's conquered the you know, riding a bike without training was conquered that climbing wall. Mm -hmm. That peak moment of success does not need a parent coaching them in terms of, you can do it, I know you can do it. We tap into the inner, inner locus of control is I'm doing it for me. I'm Mm -hmm. doing it because I think I can do it because I'm concerned today's kids give up way too easily and their resilience is impacted by less play because play is the best teacher how to raise a capable, competent, resilient kid. Yeah, well, resilience and courage, right? You know, the ancient Greeks talked about how important courage was, and we all know, right, how important courage is. Yeah. Now, as you were talking, you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of a parent or an educator who's in a position where the child is going to the edge and trying those things out, and your heart's in your throat, right? So <laughs> how do we find that line? How do we find that that balancing point? Because obviously at some level, you know, we can't have yeah. them hitting their heads or 
or no, poking no. their eyes out. I think that's a really tough one. How do we yeah. as individuals figure that out? Yeah. Okay. A couple of suggestions. The first thing is that you definitely need to hold your knuckles really tight and keep breathing. It's no question. So we keep as quiet as we can. If you call out, do you feel safe or are you feeling safe? I'd, I'd like it if people did that before they got to the scary part. Okay. Right? You remember you go, as long as your body's feeling safe, you'll be making okay choices, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you call out to them when they're getting to the tricky part, what you've done is interrupted their natural processing through their early warning system. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does huh? make sense. And I think as, you know, when they're doing like tree climbing particularly, some kids are just drawn to climbing trees. Sure. You just That's just, we're drawn to it, right? Mm -hmm. And other kids know. And I think the other thing is, you don't just stick a kid up a tree because you're four and you should be able to climb a tree. Right. If you can't climb the tree, you don't climb the tree. Right. We don't stick them up. We don't necessarily encourage them. What we do in a multi-age group of children is they'll be watching what are the first steps that older kid did. What did they do when they got to that bit? So they are actually taking in a, a video of possibility of climbing that they can access later to do it. But if they haven't seen a child do it, then they're actually more at risk. Okay, what are the benefits for the older children, having those younger children around? Oh, this is what I love the most because this is kind of how my boys were raised and how I was raised. We used to all gather up, you know, tennis clubs, golf clubs, after football matches, whatever. Heaps of kids <laughs> while the grown-ups played or the grown-up kids played. We didn't have someone looking after us mm -hmm. because what happens biologically is that when you have older and younger children, we are biologically wired to step into the caring and watching mode. We, we don't even need the lesson, right? And you will just become, yep, like the oldest responsible person. It's, it's crazy how that happens. And then what happens is that in that watching of others, you know, there's this increased perception of when you then are in an environment, you know, where there isn't a growing up, you will actually take on that more sensible way of looking at things. So they're biologically wired to become the carers and the watchers and the guardians. And then the younger ones are biologically wired to observe them and follow what they're doing. So, you know, socially and emotionally, that's the biggest one I'm finding today. Interesting, Maggie. I just read something, and this was actually from a cognitive psychologist. He wasn't talking about necessarily children at all. Yeah. He was talking about experience. And he said, you know, we tend to think as adults, well, we have more experience than children. So we owe it to them. He goes, that's just your calendar age, right? Your birth date, right? So you might be three, you might be 56, you might be 102. But you were talking about the biological wiring. He says, you have to add 300 billion years of evolution to that wisdom too. So when you look at it that way, the wisdom and the experience isn't that vast of a difference. And that sometimes that wisdom that we have from our biology be it caretaking wisdom, be it yep. risk-taking wisdom, and knowing ourselves and knowing our own approaches. Because uh, a lot of the things we, we call wisdom in adults, I have found, is just really like habit. And here's an example of biology. There was a, a book I read written by a guy who lived in New Guinea for a number of years. Teenagers don't go crazy like ours do. Like there's no pushing back at boundaries. There's no, there's just none of the stuff. And when he observed it, when he goes back and watches how they raise children, they don't don't on those children. Hmm. You only pick up a hot coal once. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But apparently they've got an awful lot of scars on them. And I know the early childhood educators tell me quite often that, you know, we need to celebrate the ouchies and the owies. Yeah. 
you know, in this journey forward, there are uncomfortable moments. Mm -hmm. We have emotionally uncomfortable ones and physically uncomfortable ones. And I find that the kids have never experienced those, particularly through the lens of play. Right. I'm worried for their resilience. We do know that the endless testing that we've done, you know, across your country and our country, where we start testing our little ones and we're pushing formalized learning down more and more, they're playing less and less. And we've shortened lunch times. We've shortened play times. I mean... Hello, I'm a high school teacher. We actually need dopamine to be able to learn. And if you create dopamine when you're playing and engaging with others in a fun way, or you're moving your body in a way that makes it go, woo, woo, it's great to be alive. We've got these passive kids that are not as active. And I've written a big article about why movement, we need to celebrate more movement for kids. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just their physical body. It's right. the whole of them. All learning starts with sensory input. It's our bodies are, are so our bodies and our brains are so integrally connected. We can't even talk about them being separate. Now, I want to just make sure before we finish here, you've talked earlier about na- getting out of nature and playing in nature. Why is nature the best playground? All right. There's a whole heap of reasons. The first thing is nature is naturally restorative on nervous systems. It mm-hmm. actually restores you into a sense of calmness, right? Then we spend too much time looking at screens and things. The second one is that time in nature, particularly the first five years, is where they are doing all their proprioceptive and vestibular growth, which means uneven surfaces and weird steps helps develop a better brain because playgrounds are all built with predictable things. So we need unpredictable to develop a capacity to manage the unpredictable. Mm -hmm. On top of that, nature for children in the first five years is exactly what their eyeballs need because we've had a 60% increase in myopia and it's not because of the screen, it's because you're not outside enough where the eyeballs are naturally getting stronger with all the distances of visual length. Mm -hmm. So that's another really important one that's out there in nature. And then nature has this wonderful thing of doing these moments randomly of awe and wonder. And I worry that that's, if you haven't got those moment peak moments of transcendence as a child, when you disappeared into a, a space and a place where time did not exist and you were in something exquisite how do you find it as a growing up? Yeah. So I love it when I encourage parents and educators to remember that dead leaf that that child is focused on, treat it like one of the most sacred things you've ever seen so that you can celebrate the awe and the wonder. I mean, that sounds a lot like the childhood I had, <laughs> where we had all of those things available to us. Not Nobody provided them. They were just there. And it's, they're still there. Yeah, it's no. just that our, our busy... Mm-hmm. A busy uh, life and also I think Instagram and things like that has created a perception of how, you know, you can have these perfect moments in childhood, but we miss the fact that, you know, those ups and down moments, the the moments where things don't go right, they're great teachable moments for our children in terms of life as well. So we, I think we need to step back a little. We are far too protective. And it's kind of like there's a happy sweet spot that I think we need to find. Well, the other thing you have mentioned, you know, our instincts as adults with young children that, you know, maybe that fear is part of that instinct, that concern about them being injured, the the, the desire for them to be literate, the desire for them to be able to do mathematics, the desire for them to, you know, all of these things that are in our heads, right, that are pestering us. What is the role of adults when we're allowing children play? Where is our stance? Oh, golly. I think we just allow it to be the priority. 
And I think it's how we weave those numerate and literate things into our activities in our relationships that mm-hmm. we don't see it as a task. It's a part of who we are. So we do have those endless conversations. We do sing those songs. We read. We don't do it because we want them to suddenly become an avid reader when they hit school. We do it because there's a joy of connection. And in yeah. the connection is the growing and the learning. And I also feel that, you know, we are way too hard on ourselves as parents. Mm-hmm. I think we feel like the people reach out to me all the time. There must be one thing I'm doing wrong, Maggie. You know, how do I shut down these you know, meltdowns? How do I stop? And I'm going, oh, no, that's developmentally beautiful. They're right on time. Oh, beautiful. I'd be more concerned if they don't have those moments. So what we've got is we need to reassure parents that there is an age and stage of every bit and you're going to love some of it and you're not going to love other bits. Mm-hmm. Right, because we can't wait till they can walk and then we can't find them. We can't wait till they can talk and then we wish they'd be quiet. You know what I mean? <laughs> My mother said, "You can't wait till the kids are independent and then you're terrified when they are." <laughs> yes, this is the this is the parental dilemma, and I think we need to embrace it that there's no perfect parent, Tom, and that you know we're all going to have a scar from our childhood of some kind. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, perfection is ridiculous. It's not where you live, who your parents are, or the color of your skin. What we've got is safe human connectedness that drives everything. And, and connected to nature and connected to yep. our own, you know, yep. sense of ourselves in that, in all those spaces. Maggie, yep. what a wonderful conversation. Now, I just wanted to ask, is there something you'd like to leave our listeners with? Don't lose your own sense of play. Because I feel when we get busy, we kind of prioritize everything else. And, and of course, our kids are doing more things online and on a screen. But the magic of being able to help your child learn how to lose well only happens with you and experience. Mm-hmm. And I really feel we've lost our play culture around homes because we live in a digital world. And I really do think that's one of the things that being able to give your children mild moments of discomfort to lose, you know, the game doesn't go your way, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You have to navigate those. You're not going to get every job you want to go for. You're not going to get a promotion. You're right. going to have an awful person who works <laughs> beside you. I know what discomfort feels like because I remember when I was a little kid that we had those moments that we validate for our kids that it feels uncomfortable. But you know what? There's another go. Let's see if we can win next. That. Winning isn't everything. Participation is what you would love your child to have a go, even if they've got no chance of winning. That's what I'd like them to have. Oh, that's magnificent, Maggie. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, It's been such a pleasure talking to you, as always. Thank you for your constant advocacy for our beautiful children, Tom. Thank you so much. We're partners in that, Maggie. Another common characteristic of an authentic childhood was the sense that we had all the time in the world. Like the story Maggie told of hanging out under a pine tree to escape a rainstorm with her grandchild. People rarely mention toys, but again, as Maggie talks about, they often talk about playing in nature with sticks and rocks and hills and water. Usually these beautiful moments involve other children of all ages. And finally, a huge percentage of our beautiful moments involve us doing things that our parents would probably have forbidden. Risk, as Maggie and I discussed. Outdoors, unsupervised, lots of time, few toys, other children, and risk. That's the stuff of our beautiful memories. Being a parent today is much more difficult, I think, than it was when Maggie and I were kids. In her book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, Psychology professor 
and researcher Allison Gopnik discusses an academic literature search she performed a while back using the keyword parenting. What she found was stunning. She says that the word barely appeared in the literature before about 1962. But since that time, the use of the word has exploded into the millions. She sees this as significant. As she puts it, we've taken a relationship, being a parent, and turned it into a verb, parenting. She points out that this is the only foundational relationship we've done this to. We don't do wifing. We don't do husbanding. We don't do friending, except perhaps on Facebook. No, we are a wife. We are a husband. We are a friend. The central metaphor of her book is that we've made parenting into a job like being a carpenter. And as carpenters, we will now be judged by the quality of our work. Oh, this table you built is too wobbly. It's not level. It's made from the wrong kind of wood. Except now, we're being judged by the quality of our parenting, which fundamentally changes the relationship we have with our children. Now we can't just let them play outside, unsupervised, with lots of time, few toys, and other children. Now we have to manufacture them, or else. Gopnik agrees with Maggie that play is central to early learning. It's foundational. She urges us to try to ignore the cultural push to make us carpenters and instead consider our role more along the lines of gardeners. We might plant and water the seed. We protect it. We make sure it gets enough sun and other nutrients. But beyond that, it's the seed's job to do the growing, to become what it was meant to be. This is how most children throughout most of human history have grown up. It's how evolution designed us to learn and thrive. This is what Maggie is talking about when she talks about stepping back and allowing our children to engage the world through their own curiosity. That's it for this episode of Teacher Tom's Podcast. And a great thank you to Maggie Dent for this amazing conversation. You'll find out more about Maggie at maggiedent.com. And in the show note, you'll find more about her and the link to the website. I'm Tom Hobson, and you've listened to Teacher Tom's podcast, Taking Play Seriously. You can find out more about me at teachertomsworld.com. That's T-E-A-C-H-E-R-T-O-M-S-W-O-R-L-D dot C-O-M. Teacher Tom's podcast is a part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Course Lab and Just Between Coaches. Stay tuned for more fun episodes by following us on the Miracy FM YouTube channel or your preferred podcast player. If you found today's insights valuable, take a moment to leave us a starred review. It'll help us reach more people like you. Thanks for playing with me, and I'll catch you in the next episode.